Morning, Hillcrest. Uh, welcome for joining us today as we continue our sermon series on tensions, uh, looking at the and in the either-or world. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Brian Stefile. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, and we're going to continue our sermon series uh, looking at God's faithfulness uh, and our unfaithfulness. But before we begin, I, there's something I've kind of noticed that I want to talk about. You see, many of us have this very interesting relationship. Uh, men probably suffer from this a little bit more than women, but women are still very vulnerable as well. It's a very tumultuous relationship. Uh, I find it's often, though, one-sided. We may spend a lot of money in this relationship. We, one minute, are on an emotional high. The next minute, we're almost in a depressive state. When sometimes we're jumping for joy, and next minute, we're yelling in anger. It's this very tumultuous relationship. The funny thing is, is the other party in this relationship, almost like they don't even hear us. Like we're not even, they don't even know we're there. It's like they don't even care about us. They say they do, but I really wonder if they truly care. You know, we may move across country, change jobs, change careers, but we're still loyal in this relationship. It's almost like this relationship is forced upon us just because we live in Wisconsin. You know, the good news is we at least don't live in Illinois, and we definitely don't live in Minnesota. And for those of you who haven't figured this out, yes, I'm talking about football. Our relationship with the NFL. For most of us, we root for the Green Bay Packers. At least they've won some Super Bowls. But, you know, if you root for the Vikings, I don't know, I'll have to ask Pastor David how many they've won. You see, these players are paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to play and we pay for their tickets, and if we're too frugal to pay for tickets, we pay a different toll, watching endless commercials for a three-and-a-half-hour game that could probably be condensed to an hour. You know, we never switch our allegiance, no matter how well the team plays, but these players, they would jump ship if the right contract came along. You know, we're so faithful to a group of players that couldn't even pick us out of a crowd. Yet I'm often confused as to how diehard we are for our football teams. It's like a lifelong commitment. Richer and poorer, better or worse, till death do us part. You know, some have suggested that men are more faithful to a losing football team than they are to their faithful, loving wives. And though it seems comical, on some level, it's probably true. In a materialistic, consumeristic world, it is so much easier to replace something than to fix it. When our marriages are struggling, so many people have the same principles. They'd rather replace it than work and spend the energy to fix their marriage. The Bible often uses the metaphor of marriage to describe our relationship with God. Now, this marriage is not a romantic partnership. It's definitely not mutually beneficial. But there's that bond there. And so the question we have to wrestle with today is, why would an all-sufficient, uh, all-powerful God commit himself to a fickle, wandering, insignificant people? Why should God remain faithful to us who are unfaithful? 
And once we accept him, are we saints or are we sinners? So today we're going to look at the book of Hosea. And Hosea is one of the minor prophets uh, that is found at the end of the Old Testament. In fact, it's the first book of the minor prophets. And it's called the minor prophets not because what they have to say is not important, but because the books are relatively short. So Hosea takes place around 715 B.C. when Israel has split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And so during that time, Israel was very prosperous. They were living through peace, prosperity, but unfortunately their actions were not impressive to God. They were oppressing the poor, putting them in slavery, and worshiping false gods. And so due to God's grace, he gave them one more chance to repent, one final opportunity to turn from their sins. And the person responsible for passing along this message was Hosea. Now, unlike the other prophets where they preached the message to Israel, God had something different for Hosea. God asked Hosea, don't just preach my message. I want you to live out my message. You see, when we look at chapters 1 through 3 of Hosea, God gives Hosea instructions to marry an unfaithful spouse. He tells Hosea, find a wife. He wants her to marry a promiscuous woman, likely a prostitute. Hosea is to marry a wife he knows will be unfaithful. And Hosea obeys. And as expected, his wife Gomer leaves him, finds multiple other lovers, has children born to her, but they're not Hosea's. We read in Hosea chapter 1, verse 3 through 9. So he went and took Gomer, just as the Lord commanded him, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, the southern kingdom. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or horsemen. And when she weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. After Gomer's unfaithfulness, she leaves the house and is separate from Hosea. Gomer continues her adulterous life. And her life spirals out of control. She racks up debts and then becomes a slave. And Hosea loves Gomer. This was not a sham relationship that he went through the motions. He loved Gomer. And so he sought her out, paid off her debts, and redeemed her and rescued her. Just like God does for us. You see, unfaithfulness or betrayal is something that we all 
will go through at some point in our lives. Now, it may not be an affair as in Hosea's case, but it comes in many forms. Abandonment, spreading of lies, gossip. Discovering that someone you trusted has betrayed you hurts us and rocks our world. And the closer this relationship is, the deeper the wounds and the more difficult the healing. If you look at psychology, if you wrote a list of your 15 top friends, okay, make that list quickly in your mind, and you circle the top one or two, or so the top one and a half, those are your intimate life partners, your spouse, the people you live with, the people that know you forwards and backwards, that see you at your best and your worst. You don't put any pretenses for them. The people that know the best representation of you. The next three and a half people, the top five, are the people that you, you talk to every day, every other day, multiple times through the week. The people that know when you're down, when you're having a good day, just by looking at you your closest friends. Now these top five people make up about half of your social interactions. And as that circle expands, the next ten people are the people that you would be your, your child care family, friends, right? If, if you have kids and you need help, someone watching your kids, these are the people you call. These are your friends, but they don't know you as well as those top five. The next 35 a circle of 50 are the people that you might see once or twice a year that you pick up where you left off six months ago, that you're on the Christmas card list, but they don't know you as well as the people in the inner circle. You see, the closeness of this circle often dictates how deep the wounds of betrayal are. You see, if someone I send a Christmas card to every year and I talk to maybe once every 12 months betrays my trust and talks bad about me, yeah, it's going to hurt, but that won't last as long as someone in the inner two circles. Someone on those, that closest one, 1.5 people. Betrayal from someone in the innermost circle hurts the worst. Now, I have several stories I really like when I was writing this up that are about my youngest daughter. Now, I love my daughter. She's super kind, sweet. Very, very, very stubborn. Uh, as indicated, she would hold her breath until she would pass out when she was younger. But you see, my youngest daughter was adopted from China. And God has taught me so much about him through her that I want to share some stories about her. Not to make fun of her or pick on her, <laughs> but just to share what God has taught me through the short time I've had with her. And when you look at the adoption circles, there's something that they talk about with adoption called the primal wound. You see, the bond between a mom, biological mom, and a daughter is so profound that when that bond is broken, there's complications from that. There's fallout. This primal wound often manifests as a sense of loss, basic mistrust, emotional and behavioral problems, anxiety, depression, loss of self-worth, self-respect, and self-esteem. And my prayer for my daughter is that she will know I love her as much as my other biological children and that she's not defined by the adoption. 
But children who are relinquished have this primal wound. They were too naughty, too ugly, or too much trouble is what they may think. We see these same symptoms. We see these symptoms so much in a sense of betrayal from the innermost circle. An affair from a spouse, a mother relinquishing her children. This hurts the most. And so God chooses the most profound relationships in our lives to show how much our unfaithfulness hurts him. And no matter what kind of relationship it is, there are still scars of shame, mistrust, suspicion, and self-blame when that innermost circle is where that betrayal comes from. And we can see this sense of betrayal as Hosea writes in chapter 2. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert and turn her into a parched land. I will slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are children of adultery. Their mother has, not been, has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Now Hosea is angry. He is hurt. And you can see that is exhibited in his speech here. This explicit language reveals just how God feels when we're unfaithful to him. This pain that Hosea feels from an unfaithful spouse is mirrored in God's pain when we're unfaithful to him and long after other things. You know, there's this theology called divine implausibility or passibility, excuse me, that thinks that if God is all-powerful, self-sufficient, he can't be hurt by his creatures. Right? He can't be influenced by us negatively because that would be a weakness. If he was impacted by us negatively, he would no longer be perfect. And then his perfection would be rely on us and how we responded to him. Therefore, some believe that God is this distant observer. He created the world and stood back and watched, unmoved by our plight. Our pain and our suffering do not bother him. God is detached. We obviously know throughout the Bible this isn't true, and Hosea is another example of this false doctrine of divine impassibility. We do not serve a detached, callous God but we serve a God that is emotionally invested in us, who can empathize with our pain and isn't ashamed of his emotions. So as we look at the story of Hosea and we look at God's faithfulness in light of our unfaithfulness, there's so many reactions we can have to that. I think one of the reactions we can easily have is to think that God is weak. Right? We know that's not true, but we may sort of have those thoughts creep in. Right? 
We may not say this to people that we see around us going through these similar things, but we may think it internally, right? The dad who pays off his son's gambling debt over and over and over again. The wife who allows her cheating spouse back into the house over and over again. Right? Some may look at that and think of that strength of perseverance, but others may look at that and say, there's a weakness there. Right? So when I do the same thing to God, I have to ask, God, are you naive? Do you really expect me to be the best? Knowing my track record? God, are you foolish? Haven't you seen the pattern yet? God, are you gullible? Do you really believe me when I say that next time will be different? Do you really believe that? Do you believe me when I say next time it will be different? Because I don't believe myself. Are you gullible, God? So we may think that God is weak, foolish, naive, gullible. We know that's not true, but those thoughts creep in. The other thing we may think is that God is so loving. We focus so much on his love and mercy that there'll be no discipline, no judgment. Right? We don't want to think about that. God's grace and mercy, that's what wins out. He will always forgive me. There's a danger to this philosophy, right? It almost gives us a license to sin. So we can do whatever we want because God's just going to forgive us. And God will forgive us, but that's not what true repentance looks like. And Paul addresses this logic in Romans 6, verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, a good example of this would be my, my great-grandmother, great-grandma Wieseman. Um, she was probably one of the kindest and most gentle people I've known in my life. She was a very strong Christian. This was evident as she lived her faith out in everyday life. And I saw this as a young kid. And I saw Jesus live down in her life. And I don't know, maybe I have a false recollection of what I was like as a kid, but I felt like when I was at her house, I behaved a little bit better. I fought a little bit less with my siblings, maybe listened a little bit more. Probably was just a better kid. I knew my grandmother would always forgive me no matter what I did, but I didn't want to take advantage of her kindness and her generosity. And knowing her character, what else should my response be? You know, I, I could have tried to stretch things to see how far would her forgiveness go. I could steal from her and see what that would do. Would she forgive me for that? I could fight with my brother. How much can I hurt my brother before she doesn't forgive me? Right? That's not what we would do. Her kindness and gentleness caused me to reciprocate love to her. I didn't want to disappoint my grandmother. Her kindness 
was not an excuse for me to take advantage of her, but a motivation to live a life that she is proud of. In a similar way, the work constantly, continually forgiven by God. We should not treat that forgiveness carelessly. We should be motivated with God's help to follow his commands. And though we're forgiven, it doesn't mean there's not consequences to our sin, right? God will forgive us of our sins, but it doesn't mean there's not consequences to our sin. We read about this in Galatians. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For wherever one sows, there he will also reap. And this leads me to the next reaction we may have. Right? If God's not weak and we don't focus so much on his love and mercy, we may turn to focus on his judgment. We focus on God's judgment specifically on sins that we don't struggle with. Right? I want to avoid discipline for my actions, but boy, over there, I want a quick judgment, God. I deserve to be disciplined. I don't want to be disciplined. Right? I look at my kids. When they're doing something wrong, there's some self-correction there getting back on course. God's no different. But when I see judgment or discipline with others, I focus on the first point. God, you're not disciplining them. You're not judging them. You must be weak, naive, or gullible. Why isn't he correcting the wrongdoing all around me? And I don't look at myself. Krish Kadiat in the book Paradoxology looks at so many tensions. It's a great book. I encourage you to read it. States, we struggle with the God who accepts, who accepts the unlovely. Let me read that again. We struggle with the God who accepts the unlovely. But we also struggle with thinking about God coming to a point where there are no more chances. We don't want to experience the full extent of his judgment. Essentially, we want to play fast and loose with God. We want God's faithfulness to extend as far as we need, but we want God's judgment to come into play when other people are unjust to us. How true is this, at least in my life? I want endless patience from God for my sins, but I want immediate justice when someone else is sinning, especially for those sins I don't struggle with. How could they? I can't believe they're doing that. You see, we often make God no longer our personal Savior who saved us, but our personal judge, jury, and executioner. And this thought process isn't something unique. You see, Jesus preached about this. He said, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but not, not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so many times, I want to take God's boundaries and put it in this box that I've created and make God a false version of who he is to settle what I want. Instead of looking at the scripture version of God and being amazed. You see, I can think that God's weak. 
I can focus on his love and mercy to an extreme that I can keep sinning relentlessly and on purpose. I can focus on God's judgment. And these are all wrong perceptions of God. But another common response, and probably one that I think many of us, at least I probably go to more often, the most common is to look at my sinful life, how I repetitively fail God and heap condemnation on myself. How can I, I can wallow in self-pity and despair. I know I'll continue to fail my Heavenly Father. I've been a Christian since I've been five. I'm not going to tell you how old I am. But since I've been five, I've been a Christian. And I'm not as far along in my Christian walk as I want to be. As I should be. For someone almost four decades into my Christian walk, why do I keep failing? Why do I stumble over the same sins over and over again? Jesus declared me holy. Why do I struggle to be holy? Christ washed away my sins, but I fall for the same temptations. I feel like I'm a hypocrite. I am a hypocrite. As I struggle to be more like Jesus, I don't just fall short. I fall way miserably short. If I'm dead to my sin, why do I keep going back to them? Am I a saint or am I a sinner? I'm amazed at God's faithfulness to me, but I'm equally amazed at my unfaithfulness to him. When I accepted Jesus, I became a saint, but I often feel like a sinner. And this isn't, this isn't anything new, but we read about Romans. When we read in Romans, so many verses that talk about how our lives are changed when we come to Christ. We look at Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 37. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 6, 18. And having been set free, set free from sin, we've become slaves of righteousness. Romans 8, 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I don't know about you, but I often don't feel like a conqueror. Or that I'm even free from my sin. I am a walking contradiction. I experience joy. God has done so much in my life, and within a minute, there's pain. I'm angry with God. I have faith that God has done so much for me, and then I start having doubts. There's peace in my life from God, and then a minute later, there's frustration at God. There's this tension. Am I a saint or am I a sinner? And this is the tension I find myself in. And Paul in Romans articulates this tension very well. In the same book that we just read those verses for, he writes, For I do not understand my own actions. 
For I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In Romans 8, 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why doesn't God just instantly take our sin away and sanctify us the minute we become Christians? What a great testimony that would be. Why doesn't God, who is absolutely holy, make me just relatively holy? It goes back to my previous point. If my good deeds don't impress God, because they don't, what I think is good doesn't impress God, and he loves me unconditionally, why even try to be holy? You see, God has a habit of choosing the most unlikely, unfaithful people. Look throughout the whole Bible. He chose Israel thousands of years ago, least of all nations. Why? Because he could. He chose 12 dysfunctional disciples who often got more wrong than right during Jesus' ministry on earth. God seeks out the marginalized and the outcasts. God turns the world's hierarchy upside down. He doesn't look at our financial portfolio. He doesn't look at our social status, our good looks. None of that matters to God like it does to the world. He chooses the broken and delights in making something out of nothing. He makes saints out of nobodies. Paul writes in Corinthians, For I consider your calling, or excuse me, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak, you and I, in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God uses me, weak, broken, to reveal his strength. It was on my strength that I would steal glory from God. But because I am weak and broken and God does things, he gets the glory. God's compassion, his faithfulness to us is clearly revealed when he adopts us into his family. Ephesians says he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to the one he loves. This gives me insight into my my sin and my sanctification. What sanctification is just that fancy religious word, which is that progressive work to make us holy, to make us more like Christ. Unfortunately, we're not immediately holy. And this process takes time. It'll never be complete this side of heaven. But when I brought my daughter home from China, you know what's amazing? Shocking, actually. She didn't act like my kids right away. She didn't pick up the language right away. She didn't figure out the family routine right away. Heck, her days and nights were messed up. She didn't figure that out. Took about a week and a half. Right? 
her transition into our family took time. It was painful, <laughs> and it still is at time. Her figuring this out is no different than our walk with God. It takes time. So as we look at God's faithfulness and our unfaithfulness and struggle with being a saint and a sinner, we need to focus on how God's love for us, his love for us, and there's no condemnation. Not that we should sin so grace abounds, but there's no guilt. If we go back to Romans and look at Paul's message, the main point of Romans chapter 8 is to dramatically illustrate what happens if you seek sanctification apart from the Spirit through the law. You see, God gave the Ten Commandments and the law as a set of rules, but no man can obey all those laws. The law can't make us holy. We may try, but we'll fall short. We can't earn our holiness. Paul shares this tension in chapter 7 as someone who is a sinner trying to be a saint on their own. We can't earn that. Wrestling with this tension of trying to earn our salvation is difficult because sin is difficult. We cannot become saints by earning our standing before God. Instead, we embrace the reality as saints, not by earning, but embracing Romans 8, chapter 8, more fully. 7 talks about our plight, and Romans 8 talks about how we embrace the Spirit. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law couldn't save us. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, we can't earn our salvation. Right? We know that. But when we start feeling that guilt, that guilt is from us trying to earn our salvation. That's what that guilt is. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In Romans 8, 1, an awesome verse. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as I've been working on this sermon, trying to struggle with that tension of God's faithfulness and our unfaithfulness and this being a saint and a sinner, God gave me a great object lesson in my daughter. And I'm not making this up. I was upstairs working on the sermon. And I hear a commotion downstairs. I walk downstairs to find out what's going on. And my six-year-old daughter is kicking and yelling at my wife because my wife wanted to go for a walk without her. And she's a mommy's girl. She loves her daddy, but she is a mommy's girl through and through. And the fact that mommy was willing to go for a walk without her, she was mad and angry and she wanted to know it. So I told my wife to go for a walk and I picked her up so she wouldn't hurt anyone. And she's kicking and screaming and trying to hurt me as I walk up the stairs. And I'd love to tell you that I had the utmost patience and I maybe didn't squeeze hard enough because I was frustrated. But I'm not perfect. 
And as I carried to her room, she kept saying over and over, I love my mommy, I love my mommy, I hate my daddy. I hate my daddy, I hate my daddy, I hate my daddy. She did this for 20 minutes. And it hurt. But I have to remind myself about that primal wound. You see, though I'm disappointed and hurt, I know she's coming from a place of hurting too. There are things in her past that I don't know about. A primal wound that leads her to lash out. And I know she'll do this again and again and again. Fortunately, they're becoming less frequent, but this will happen again in the future. My love for her doesn't falter. My patience sometimes does. But my love doesn't falter. How much more our perfect Heavenly Father? We all have trauma in our past. We have a primal wound. We are created for fellowship with God. God created us to have a perfect fellowship with him. But sin separated that. And though we're adopted into his family, that transition isn't immediate. We act out, we yell, we kick, we scream. We tell God we hate you because you're not doing what we want. How does he respond? With no condemnation. And he knows we'll do this again and again and again. But his love never falters. He is faithful while we are unfaithful. And though we are sinner and saint at the same time, he is faithful and there is no guilt. There is no guilt. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for putting people in our lives to show us your love. We thank you for your word that shows us your truth. And we thank you that there's no guilt and no condemnation. And let us remember that when we try to do this on our own and earn our salvation. And that guilt creeps in and takes the attention off of you and what you did on the cross and weakens that. Instead, Focus on you and what you did on the cross. Your faithfulness to an unfaithful people. And all we can do is sit here and stand amazed and love on you and thank you. And know we will stumble and falter. Let us keep coming back to you. And we just thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. And we love you so much. Amen.